The following audio is from Story City Church in Burbank, California. For more information on Story City, go to storycitychurch.com. All right, well, good morning. How's everybody doing? You good this morning? Wow, you, you, you're such a good-looking, good-sounding church. Isn't it good to be a part of a good-looking, good-sounding church? You sound so good. I love it. I love being a part. Hey, can you guys thank our worship team? They do a great job every single week. Man, so good. So good. Well, I hope you're having a good summer so far. Um, we are halfway through the year. We start a brand new series today, and I'm excited about it. I, 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 we've done this series before, and we allow you to shape the content for this series. It's so good. It's good to hear the questions that our church is asking. And you ask some really hard questions. And so I want to remind you this morning, as we have a four-week series, that you've created the content for this series. We're just responding to the questions that you're asking, all right? And I also want to remind you this morning that we're not making up answers in this series. Uh, I've told you this before, and I want to remind you again today, but the scriptures, the Bible is the loudest voice in our church. And so as we answer these questions, we look to scripture to answer them for us. And so let me pray for us. And if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up. Turn it to Romans chapter one is our text this morning. Romans chapter one is our text. Let me pray. God, we love you. We need you this morning, God. God, thank you for the privilege of being in a good looking, good sounding church. God, you're so good to us. Thank you for what you're doing in this place, in this city. Thank you for the privilege of being a part of a movement of God here. And so, Lord, we honor you uh, with what you're doing, Lord. And so this morning, as we open up the scriptures, we need you to open up our hearts. God, we need you to open up our ears and allow us to listen and receive, Lord, even at times when the scripture speaks to difficult things, God. And so, God, we call on you today. Grow us. Grow us deep today. God, grow us wide today. In Jesus' name we pray. Everybody in the Colony Theater said amen and amen. Well, our first question in this series comes from uh, someone that I know, and uh, I'm so excited to answer. We're going to approach this question today. It's a difficult question, and there's difficult truth in the answer to this question today. And I want to say right up front, some of you are going to have a difficult time with this text today. You're going to have a difficult time with this question. You're going to feel anxiety and tension with the question today. And I just want to be open with you and say, let's know what to expect. So without further ado, let's read the question that we have before us in our first week. The question is, what if you are a good person? You never lied and cheated or you stole anything and you do everything that makes up a person of God, but you don't believe in Christianity. Maybe you just were never exposed to it. Does that mean that God will not allow me to heaven, even though that person did all of the things that a true believer of Christianity would do? It's a great question this morning. It's a question that a lot of people in modern culture ask. Let's be honest this morning. When you read that question, does there sort of a sense of tension when you read that question? a little bit possibly, a little bit of anxiety, maybe a little bit of shame. When you read that question, when you see it, do you think, I, when I read that, I think of people. I think of people. I think of my roommate in college who, was a good, who is a good person, 
who's a great person. He's kind and he's, he's moral. He would go out of his way to do things for other people. He would do random acts of kindness for other people, but he's hardly ever in his life stepped into a church. He would certainly never call himself a Christian. I think of people that I do funerals for as a pastor. I've never done a funeral for anyone. I've never attended a funeral for anyone where somebody sit on the stage and say, you know what, that sucker, he was just mean and cruel and unkind. Good riddance. I've never been in a funeral like that. I, I, I do a lot of funerals. I sit in funerals where I hear people say things like, man, heaven just gained another angel. He or she is sitting above us, standing above us, looking down on us now. I think of somebody who used to work for our family business, and he was a person who had extraordinary integrity in his job. He did the right thing all the time. He never cut corners. He always made sure the job was done right. Don't you think of people when you read questions like that? You feel the sense of tension and anxiety, but that person, they're a really, really good person. Why would God not allow a person like that into heaven? And what about well-respected moral people in our world? The Dalai Lama said, my religion is very simple. My religion is kindness. Albert Einstein said, the ideals which have always shone before me and filled me with joy are goodness and beauty and truth. And then Dave Matthews said, we have to be active about kindness and about peace. Don't you feel tension? When you hear Christianity making these exclusive claims about morality and about life after death, and I don't know about you, but I just think of people that I know that are, we think that we describe them as good and moral people. And sometimes those people seem, they seem more like Christians than some of the Christians we know. Is Christ the exclusive path to heaven? Or can there be another way? Why is it even necessary to believe in Jesus and Christianity? Why can't I just be a good person? Why isn't it enough just to be good to other people? And so when I read this question, I think oftentimes, um, the majority of the time, and now I know the person who asked this question, and I really believe her heart is pure because she has a concern for someone in her life, and I believe I know who that person is. And I believe she's genuinely concerned for someone in her life. But I believe nine out of 10 times when that question comes up, it's not out of a concern for other people. It's out of a shame for what Christianity believes. Here's why. We don't like exclusive claims in our culture. We don't want anybody to be on the outside. We want everybody to be included. We fight against anything that doesn't feel that way. And so I, I think it's obvious, it's possible that we feel shame to even be associated with anything that gives us sort of hint of exclusivity. So what is it about the gospel? What is it about Christianity that makes people feel ashamed as it pertains to this question? You know, even Paul in Romans chapter one, said that people are going to feel that way. And we may even go so far as to say, well, you know what? If, if Christians believe that, there's no way that Christianity could possibly be true. We go so far as to say, how could anybody take Christianity seriously if it teaches there's a place called hell where God sends people, even those who are good people? And if that's true, it makes God seem like he's mean 
and cruel and vindictive and vengeful, almost as if God is, is this sadist who, who takes pleasure in inflicting pain on people who don't believe in him. And by the way, doesn't that just seem unfair? Maybe you live 30 years or 40 years or 70 years or 80 years, and let's just say you're one of the worst people humanity has ever known. But 30, 40, 70, 80 years and, uh, of badness and God uh, punishes you with an eternity of pain? How does that even seem fair? But then what about the people who have never heard of Jesus? Bertrand Russell, one of the world's most well-known skeptics, said in a book, Why I'm Not a Christian, Christ's teaching on hell is the one profound defect in Christ's character. The extraordinary author, C.S. Lewis, said of hell, there is no doctrine By the way, he's a believer. There is no doctrine which I could more willingly remove from Christianity than this, if it lay in my power. You know, most people think they're going to go to heaven. But is that what the Bible teaches? Is that what Christianity believes? And what is it about Christianity that makes us feel shame about this question of goodness in heaven. Romans chapter one, starting in verse 16 this morning, Paul makes this statement. For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who, listen to it, believes. First to the Jew and then to the Gentile for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. It's a righteousness, Paul says, that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. This verse is at the heart of what Romans is about. It's sort of the thesis statement for the book of Romans. And Paul's believing in the gospel and preaching the gospel put Paul sort of in a a bad light. His preaching of the gospel disturbed people and it caused people to put Paul to shame. In fact, we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul lists out all the ways that he's been shamed because he believed the gospel, because he preached the gospel. Listen to what the scripture says in 2 Corinthians 11. In far more labor, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys, in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, Dangers among faults, brethren. You read that and you think, wow, it's not so bad if somebody unfriends me on Instagram because of my beliefs. And Paul's way of not being ashamed was not to keep the message hidden. Paul's way of not being ashamed was not to sort of hedge against his beliefs or or decorate the message of Christianity with other parts of the message of Christianity that made it more palatable. It's as if Paul's saying here in Romans chapter one, you may not like the message, but it's the only one that connects us to the power of God. 
And because of that, Paul was not only unashamed, he was eager. Paul felt this power of the gospel in his own life personally. And Paul knew that it was the only hope of salvation. So whether it's offensive to you or whether it's not, it's as if Paul said, I am eager to get that message to everyone. One pastor said, it is the most loving thing in the world to tell the truth about the way of salvation. Paul was so overwhelmed with grace in his life. He knew I didn't deserve the grace that Jesus gave to me. And Paul thought of himself as being a debtor. He was in debt to everyone with this message. He thought, it's my responsibility. I cannot keep this message from them. So what is it about the gospel that the Bible affirms? What is it about this message that Paul preaches and he's not ashamed of? I want to give you four things this morning. If you're writing with something, I want you to take some notes or maybe even put them in your phone this morning. What is it about this gospel that makes us feel ashamed? One pastor gives several reasons why modern Christians feel ashamed of the gospel. Can I give you three of them this morning? Number one, I'm telling you, before you put this on screen, this is hard. But I have no other way to explain to you what the gospel says than opening up the Bible and sharing it with you. That's my responsibility to you this morning. Number one, the gospel tells us we're spiritual failures. The gospel tells us we're spiritual failures. If there, if there are, if there are indeed people in the world who are indeed very good and very moral and very kind, then I have to ask my question, then why did Jesus willingly die? Why did Jesus willingly give himself up to be executed? It seems like, it seems like that would be a pointless and a very painful uh, uh, exercise. Even if we were to say, well, Jesus came to be a good example. Well, did he really have to die if he came to be a good example? Scripture tells us Jesus did not come for people who are well and healthy. Jesus came for the spiritually sick. He didn't come to coach people with spiritual potential to become greater successes. He came for people who had no spiritual potential at all. He came for spiritual failures. We missed the mark. We dialed the wrong number. I was at a birthday party recently, not long ago, at this restaurant here in downtown Burbank, and they had these, this dartboard. And all around the dartboard, all the way to the ceiling, all the way to the bottom, you could tell people had missed the dartboard. They're like, wow, how did you really miss? Like five feet, how did you miss that, right? But that's what sin is. We, we missed the mark. We didn't even come close. The Bible says in Romans 3.20, therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. Verse uh, 23 of Romans 3. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Isaiah chapter 53 says, All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Do you know in school, oftentimes, if you, if you, if you make a good enough grade by the end of the semester at the semester final, you can oftentimes exempt out of the semester final. I love classes like that because I would work hard not to have to take the final. I could exempt out of the final. No one is exempt from spiritual failure, though. When we say there are good people who 
should go to heaven, even if they don't believe in Jesus, what we're implying is this. There's only a certain class of people who need Jesus. Those people obviously are the most immoral and the most corrupt in our society, and those are the people that need to be reformed. Everyone else, though, they're good enough to be given eternal joy in heaven. The problem with that is that each of us makes up our own scale. We make up our own morality scale. We make up our own goodness scale. But the truth of the scripture is that no one is good. We've all failed spiritually. And for failures like me and you, the only way to be saved from our failure is through a free gift. This is the good news, it's, but it's also offensive news. So when pastor says, this offends moral and religious people who think their decency gives them an advantage over the less moral. Number two reason why we often feel shame over this concept and this question. The gospel tells us we're wicked. The gospel tells us we're wicked. The gospel doesn't just say we made mistakes. It doesn't say we could all just do a little bit better. It levels the playing field. That says apart from God, we are utterly wicked. Now, if you've invited somebody to church this morning, I apologize. And I know you're like, oh my gosh, this is the Sunday. Wow. (laughs) But hang on. So wicked, in fact, that only Jesus could save us. One pastor says, this offends the popular belief in the innate goodness of humanity. And nobody likes to believe this. Nobody wants to believe this. I, 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 don't want to believe this, but the reality is, if we really examine our souls, we can see these small fires that are burning inside of us that point to this reality. St. Augustine said something extraordinarily wise about this. He said, when we look into our souls, we can see smoke from the fires of hell burning in us. This is what that looks like. When we feel unhappy and unfulfilled, we begin to think, well, the next season of life is going to be the season where I'm going to be happy, but, but you never are, and it's never worked, which leads to being prone to being jealous. Jealous of, of Jealousy usually comes out of this personal unhappiness that we, we feel. We look at somebody else and we say, well, that, that's the life that I want. That's the life that I deserve. And we think they have what I need to be happy. And so we resent them and we hate them for it, which also then leads to us stepping on other people in pursuit of our own pleasure. It's not that we're sadistically mean people. That's not, just, that's not the case. I know plenty of people in my life who have nothing to do with Jesus and never been in a church that are not sadistically mean people. It's just that we prioritize our own happiness. And if we have to, occasionally, if we have to, uh, we'll use other people to get what we need. So we mistreat other people, oftentimes our own family. We step on people at work. We, we, we do whatever we need to do to get what we need to satisfy us. We cheat, we cut corners, and we aren't kind to those people who are different from us, which leads us to something else. We become prone to addictions. We can't say no to pleasure. It takes the form of all sorts of addictions, drug addictions, 
alcohol addictions, pornography addictions, food addictions, eating disorders. And they all come out of a soul that craves something extraordinary till we finally realize that obedience to God just feels like drudgery. Just feels like the most painful thing possible. God bores us. We secretly resent God trying to rule our life. So, so if I submit to him, I, I'm doing so not out of delight, but out of fear, out of guilt. But when we look close, we realize I, I, I don't have a heart or a soul that delights to obey in God. Those are the small fires burning within us if we look deep in our soul that points to this wickedness. And while nobody, including probably no one in this room, wants to believe the reality that there's an alternate ending besides heaven, and especially that you or I or somebody we love is headed there, those things inside of us, smoke from the fires within us, the wickedness is gaining steam. And those things are the result of not having God in the right place in your life. And when we don't have God in the right place, we feel unsatisfied, we feel restless, we feel unfulfilled. Here's the third thing that makes us feel ashamed about the gospel that Christianity proclaims. The gospel tells us that many good people go to hell. The reigning religious view, if you will, of our society, it's usually assumed more than it's just verbalized, is that good, sincere people will be okay in the end. Maybe God grades on a curve. Maybe uh, he's at the top of a mountain and all of our efforts to get there, eventually he'll pull us up to where he is. However, however you conceptualize it this morning, we tend to think that good intentions will be good enough for God. But church, listen to me this morning. The gospel truth is shuddering. Good moral people are not guaranteed heaven. For the simple reason that none of us are deep down actually good and moral people. Jesus didn't come to bring nice people to heaven. Jesus came to save sinners from hell. And God is the only one who can provide salvation. That's what Paul says here in Romans chapter one. And if you're gonna receive it, you have to do it his way. But now listen, let me address some objections. But people sometimes say, but how is that fair? I get it, I understand it. I'm asking this question honestly. How is that fair, Pastor Matt? An eternity in hell for 30, 50, 70, 80 years of sin? I just want to say to you this morning that sin gains traction in its wickedness by the one whom the sin is committed against. I remember when I was a kid, my mom used to cut my hair. <laughs> and I hated how she cut my hair. And one day I went in my dad's bathroom and I was so, I, I punched a hole through the wall. <laughs> and when you punch a hole through the wall, well, you end up, I don't know, maybe having to pay for it. You end up maybe being put on restriction. You go into a bar tonight and you punch a guy or a girl, you're going to spend the night in jail. You stand outside Buckingham Palace tomorrow 
and raise your fist when the Queen of England comes by. It's going to be something much more than jail. Sin gains its wickedness by whom the sin is directed against. Sin against an infinitely holy God. Listen to me. Here's the concept. Sin against an infinitely holy God is infinitely wicked. Sin against an eternal God warrants eternal punishment. It's not the duration of the crime. Listen to me. It's the dignity of the one against whom the crime was committed that determines the severity of the punishment. You say, well, why can't God just let it go? Because God is a just God. And justice demands restitution in some way. Think about it. Don't you hate it when we see justice aborted? Don't you hate it when you see justice aborted? Think about how angry people get when we see, let's just say, a court decision we really disagree with. Think about how we feel when we feel like someone has gotten away with gross injustice. Pick your court case. It doesn't matter. There's one for all of us this morning. George Zimmerman, O.J. Simpson, Donald Trump. Pick your pleasure. All of us feel like, I, I just don't like it when someone gets away with gross injustice. Now listen to me. God will ultimately judge right and wrong. He will ultimately right all wrongs and restore justice to the universe. And that's what hell is. You say, well, why doesn't God do something about it? He has. He's put on Jesus the punishment for your sin. And there are two ways to pay for sin. The eternal son of God can die for your sin or you can pay for it eternally. But if you won't receive his invitation, listen, I want to say to you, there's no other alternative. In the end, you end up saying to God, thy will be done. Or God says to you, thy will be done. People hear about hell and they object to it. And they say, I just don't understand that because God should be for us. Church, he is. He is. God takes no pleasure, hear me, in any form of punishment, in anything less than his best for you. God's intention is to bring all of us to life, so much so that he's going to die on a cross so you don't have to go there. He cares that much about you. Then you say, well, why did God even make hell? Scripture says he didn't make it for you. He tells us he made it for the devil and the rebel angels. It was never for you. God allows you, though, to make free choices. And if you say, get out, ultimately, he will honor your wishes. Why? Because God's not a tyrant. Can you write this down? God doesn't send anyone to hell. We send ourselves. Hell is not a locked door from the inside. It's the final and natural result of telling God, get out. And so we have two options. We live with God or we live without God. And so if you say, I don't want God's authority in my life, I choose godlessness. Well, that's what hell is. Frederick Nietzsche once said, I would rather go into nothingness than surrender to God's will. 
But what about those who have never heard this morning, Pastor Matt? What about those who have never heard the name of Jesus? Do you know in Christianity there's a very specific and well-known part of the world and parts of the world where we know the gospel must go there. According to Matthew chapter 24, the gospel must go there before the end will ever come. The gospel must go there. In Christianity, we call it the 1040 window. What about people who have never heard the name of Jesus? And we don't have an extraordinary amount of time to address this this morning, but let me just tell you this one thing. You never have to doubt the love and the justice of God. And the Bible says when we finally see things from God's perspective, what's going to amaze us is not the severity of his justice, but the generosity of his love. When we can see it from God's view, it's not the severity of his justice that blows us away. It's the generosity of his love. And scripture makes it clear that nobody is held accountable, listen to me, for what they haven't heard. We're only responsible for what we have heard and rejected. Now listen, here's the caveat. Romans 1 says that all of us have been given through creation and our conscience a measure of the light of God. And all of us have rejected that. Our natural state, our natural state is to hate and to reject God. And the only way, listen to me, because this is where it's extremely applicable if you're a Christian this morning. The only way any of us ever believe and learn to love God is that God changes our heart to love him. And he does that through the preaching of the gospel. (laughs) That's why we need to go. That's why you need to care about the people that you work with. That's why you need to care about the people you live beside. That's why you need to care about the people in your home because God changes people's hearts when the gospel is made known. That's our command. That's our mandate. Go into all the world. But Pastor Matt, what if Somebody looked at creation and in their conscience, they wanted to know God. Well, we have two cases of that in the book of Acts. Acts chapter eight, we have the Ethiopian eunuch. Acts chapter 10, we have Cornelius. Time doesn't allow, but we have stories from missionary around the world, particularly in the 1040 window, where they've gone into unreached, unreached tribes and unreached people groups. And they have heard that people have said, I had a dream about this person named Jesus and God sent a missionary in. What if someone looked at creation and their conscience wanted to know God? We will never have to doubt the love and the justice of God. Now, finally, let me end with this. Let me recap. The gospel tells us that we're all spiritual failures. The gospel tells us that we're wicked. The gospel tells us that many good people go to hell, but listen to this last one. The gospel tells us that all of this doesn't have to be true about you. Hebrews chapter 12, verse two and three says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. One pastor said Jesus was, his shame was stripped away. Every earthly support that Jesus had. His friends gave way to shaming abandonment. 
His reputation gave way to shaming slander. His decency gave way to his clothes being stripped from him and gambled away. His comfort gave way to shaming and torture. And though he was shamed, Jesus was not ashamed of his father. Why? Because God had the power to save him from death. God had the power to give him glory that he deserved at his right hand forever. And so Jesus bore our shame. Why? So we don't have to. It doesn't have to be true that you're a spiritual failure. It doesn't have to be true that your wicked heart condemns you. It doesn't have to be true that we are headed towards hell. Why? God has the power to save you. You aren't good enough for that. God has the power to clothe you in joy and satisfaction in him. How does he do that? Well, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God unto salvation. Listen to what 1 Corinthians 1:18 says, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligent of the intelligent, I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, listen to what he says, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, listen to how he closes. Christ, Christ, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. 75 years ago, people were shamed if they did not believe the gospel was true. Today, people are shamed for believing there is any truth. The gospel does two things. It brings out shaming behavior in those who won't believe it. Number two, it gives freedom from shame to those who do believe it. In other words, shaming today is not to say you're wrong, it's to say you're arrogant. If you think somebody else is wrong, it's one of the greatest weapons that culture uses to shame religious claims. It's really an accusation of intolerance, which leads people to believe you're a mean-spirited, egotistical person. Church, our best response is this. The most loving thing we can do is to tell the world the truth about the way of salvation. The most loving thing we can do is tell the world the truth about the way of salvation. John 14, six says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father but by me. Acts 4.12 says, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. The gospel of Christ alone is the power unto salvation. Have you been saved?
Have you trusted your life to Jesus? The gospel is clear. You're not good enough to save yourself. But Jesus was. Jesus was kind enough, loving enough, gracious enough, merciful enough, just enough to take your sins on the cross. Would you be saved today? Would you give your life to Jesus today? There's nothing magical or mystical about it. We don't make you stand on a stage and say anything you don't want to say. In this moment, it's a moment for you to acknowledge before God your sin and ask him to forgive you of your sin and ask him to save you today. Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10. And if you would believe, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Not that you ought to be, not that you might have been, not that you can be. You will be saved. The message of the gospel is so simple. And we think there's no way that could possibly be true. It's just too simple. That's the beauty of the gospel. And that's Jesus' invitation to you today. Would you bow your heads? Close your eyes. I want to pray over us this morning. If you've never been saved, I, I want to beg you. The most loving thing I can do today is to proclaim to you tell you the power of God is Christ on the cross for your salvation would you come to Jesus today in your heart of hearts would you pray and ask God to forgive you and to save you today right where you are lastly those who are believers this morning I, I confess with you there are moments and times and days and places where there is the sense of shame about the exclusive claim of Christ, but the reality is it's an inclusive claim. Jesus calls us all. He makes the opportunity available to all. If you're a believer this morning, I want to pray for you that God would give you the boldness, the courage, the freedom to do the most loving thing we can possibly do. And that is to allow the world to know the way of salvation is through Jesus. Lord God, thank you for this morning. Lord, in the midst of difficulty in your word, I pray the spirit of the living God would give us clarity and freedom this morning to believe the truth, all the truth about what you say, God. We commend ourselves to you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.